0: love your work, do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now here's your host, Dan Miller. Taking care of business. You know, when I hear that opening every single week, I'm reminded how much it fits. And when I hear that announcer's voice, come on, do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're at the right place if you think it's possible. If you don't, stick around. We may change your thinking. Life is too short. Settle for anything less. Hey, this week's podcast is brought to us by eCornell.com. Now, I'm going to tell you how to get some information from there. This is the real deal, Cornell University and I'm going to show you how you can get a certificate in marketing from them in a very short period of time, very little money. And I'm going to, I'll help you walk through that, but it's going to be ecornell.com slash 48 days. Real simple to find it. Just stick with me. I'll come back to that in a little bit. Can you love your work? Yeah. Do you think we think it's possible? Absolutely. Well, the theme for today's podcast is going to be don't be original. Now that may sound odd for a show where we talk about how to take ideas and put legs on them. Well, stick with me here. I'll explain that a little bit. I'll I'll at least stimulate your thinking about whether it's better to be original or not. Here's some questions we'll be covering. Dan, I started giving instead of complaining and got a 10% off-season raise followed by another 5% raise. How cool is that? Dan, I'm more passionate about a less profitable area of my industry. What should I do? How can I get into automotive painting or bodywork? Should I put my side business on my resume? Dan, I've had one good idea in the last 20 years. Should I pursue it now? Probably not. That's my comment, incidentally. That's not part of the question. Dan, I'd like to start a vending business. Is this a workable idea? Yes, I love vending. Well, here's a quotation. Before I tell you who it came from, let me just tell you the quotation. Tis better to imitate genius than to create mediocrity. What do you think? Are you better off Imitating somebody who's really good or just be totally original? Now, I, I don't, that, that quotation is actually something that I just spouted out this morning. Sounds like Shakespeare or something, doesn't it? Tis better to imitate genius than to, gr-. I'm not sure where that came from. I doubt that that's totally original with me, but I was standing in the group of artists this morning. We we're here at the Sanctuary a bunch of ladies who do art here. And one of the ladies was apologizing in that she knew the piece that she had just done was much like the art instructor, Dorsey. And I just spouted that out. I says, it is better to imitate genius than to create mediocrity. Now, again, I suspect the seeds of that were planted in my brain somehow, but I can't find anything on the internet in terms of that being a quotation and I, I'm not sure that I'm ready to stand behind that, <laughs> but I see that played out time and time again. I mean, Tony Robbins, I mean, the basic model of his mega billion dollar industry is find somebody who's doing what you want to do and model their behavior. Imitate genius. I mean, all the great artists will tell you that. That's how they started out. They imitated the great artist. And if you want to be in business, if you want to open a bowling alley, go find 10 others that are being done and do what they're doing and do it a little bit better. If you want to open up a ice cream parlor, go visit Sweet CeCe's, Ben and & Jerry's, and all the Dairy Queens around, Baskin Robbins. Go visit them all. That's a legitimate way to figure out how you're going to do. So I'm, I, we'll, we'll go with that for today. It is better to imitate genius than to create mediocrity, at least as a stimulating thought. Well, here's some of the success stories that have come in, and I always like to start with. Dear Dan and Ashley, Ashley being my daughter, we uh, recently did a 48 Days Challenge. Had a whole bunch of people in there, and uh, they went through the 48 Days timeline day by day. We did a call at the beginning for the whole group, call at the end, and got a whole bunch of really cool notes in. But here's one. First of all, thanks for creating and moderating this material and community. It's proven to be very fruitful. I would like to say that I've completed every step in the process, but to be frank, I've been too busy working on my new business. Shortly after losing my job at a CPA firm and joining the group, I decided to do consulting and accounting work while I discovered and pursued my passion. Well, barely a month has gone by since losing my job, and I now have seven different clients paying both on an hourly and value billing basis. And I've already replaced most of my income, making $6,500 in the last month. Most of the work is online and allows me to be more flexible for my family than ever before. I truly believe being released from my position has been a great blessing. Sure, there are times of anxiety for the future, but I also believe that I can create the future I want. I'm continuing to look for other streams of income to complement the accounting work, but at this point, I feel better about my career than ever before. Thanks again for your guidance and cheerleading. And if you ever need a part-time controller or CFO, you know where to find me. Trey Chandler. Well, thanks for that note. What a what a cool thing. You know, if I read letters, if I just read the letters from people who lost their job, had a business crash, got fired or whatever, and then the stories about how they think it was the best thing that ever happened to them, I mean, I could fill the podcast week after week after week and do nothing but read those letters. It's so common. I know you may be feeling the bite, the sting, the pain, if you've just recently gone through that. But be encouraged by the hundreds of letters that storm in here from people who say, you know, things were okay. And if something wouldn't have happened, I would just have stayed in that okay position. I mean, I tell people often that they're in what I call comfortable misery. They know it's not great. They know it's not where they ought to be, but that's eh, predictable, not really any real threat. So they just stay there. And I tell people like that a lot. Golly, the best thing that could happen to you is if you got fired. Now that usually shocks people a little bit, but a lot of them have lived to see that borne out where they in fact did lose their job. I worked with a lady one time She was an engineer, had done extremely well in her career, but she was an engineer because her dad and her brothers were engineers, and so she followed suit and knew that it was really a mismatch, even though she was doing really well financially and in position. We mapped out what she could move into. She was excited about it. She knew it was a great fit for her. She could not pull the trigger. She couldn't make it happen, and I told her, I said, golly, the best thing in the world that could happen to you is if you got fired. Well, she was just mortified to even think about that. Two weeks later, the company announced they were moving their operations from Louisville, Kentucky, to Lexington. And if you wanted to keep your job, you had to move. Well, her husband was established. Her kids were there in school and she didn't want to move. So in effect, she did lose her job. That was enough to launch her in the new direction. And she's been extremely successful but, but I don't think she would have pulled the trigger if there wouldn't have been something that was that inciting incident, precipitating situation, whatever. We give it different terms. Dr. Phil says we all have five defining moments in our life. Well, sometimes we need a defining moment to prod us to take the next step. Well, a couple others. Hi, Dan, reading 48 Days No More Dreaded Mondays gave me a desperately needed attitude adjustment toward my job and life in general. I started giving an extra 110% all while focusing on the great aspects of my job instead of the toxic negativity, which affected all areas of my life. Shortly thereafter, I unexpectedly received a 10% off-season raise. My manager said that I was bringing a lot of value to the project and I deserved a boost. Three months later, I received a stellar performance review with an additional 5% pay increase. Thanks for sharing your words of wisdom to help me turn my life around. Isn't that interesting? No external situation, circumstances changed. He didn't change the job. He didn't leave. Ooh, he changed his attitude. And all of a sudden, the job became more bearable and he got 15% increase. That's pretty cool. Well, let's go to some questions here. Ryan from Long Beach. Dan, I'm working through your decision-making process outlined in 48 days. So I'd like to solicit your advice and feedback on the decision before me. With my private detective business, I want to choose what area of investigations that I want to be my focus or niche. The first area, insurance investigations, in which I've been working for the last 13 years. I know that industry and what is needed to be successful. However, I'm not particularly passionate about it or feel called to it. The other area of investigations, private detective work, marriage fidelity, missing persons, background investigations, I feel called to and passionate about making an impact in it. But my experience level in this area is quite a bit lighter than my experience in the first area. Which area do you think I should pursue and why? Well, Ryan, I I think you can do both. I mean, I don't think you have to exclusively limit it. But I think you have to be realistic about your business model. Now, let me just kind of extract an example. As a coach, I may be passionate about helping recently released inmates start their own businesses, but they don't have any money and all the programs that are available to help them want them to get jobs. So I have to balance my coaching with clients who have the personal resources to pay for the coaching with my passion to help a needy but poor group as well. I want to do both. The reason I mention it in that way is that I suspect that doing insurance investigations, insurance companies are used to paying for your services. Pretty straightforward. You outline that when you, when you get into the area of marriage fidelity, missing persons, that's more uncharted territory you're going to have to build a case for what the value of your work is there. I suspect it's going to take more time to secure those agreements with people, to set it up, to educate them on what's going to happen, and to establish and receive reasonable fees. So I I encourage you to follow your passion, but I suspect it's probably not a clear either or. It's more of an and in this situation. Now, if you become you know, the next John Walsh or something on missing persons and you you become a big name in that arena and you can get the fees that you're used to and maybe more. Now yeah, that's great, but do it over a period of time. Don't try to make that transition too quickly. Tyler from British Columbia, Canada. I'll sum it up quickly. I've been let go from my employer of 10 years due to a recently diagnosed mental illness. This does not directly affect my work or or my ability to work in my opinion, but others disagree. I'm eligible to go on disability, on employment insurance, as well as regular employment insurance. All family and friends tell me to take time off to sort out what I want to do. Thing is, I already know. I want to get into automotive painting and body work. Always has been, always will be a passion of mine. How would you recommend I make the transition from wholesale salesperson to automotive painter? Community college, directly to the body shop first, see if they offer training. Thank you, Dan. You're currently the giant on whom whose shoulders I'm standing. Wow. Thank you, Tyler. Well, I appreciate you having a heads up attitude about what you're going through and just wanting to stay in the game rather than looking for somebody to give you a handout because you've been diagnosed with a challenging situation. I would encourage you to, in, in your situation, to go directly to the automotive painting shops. When I flip channels, one of the shows that I land on is counting cars. If you haven't checked it out, check it out. Counting cars. Now, I really doubt that those guys, you know, went to community college or went through college and got their automotive body degrees. These are just guys, you know, gearheads. These are just guys that are naturally drawn to working on cars. Most guys that I know that are really great at body work, especially, now mechanics is a little different, but body work most of them just started doing it. They learned by doing. That's one of those things I think you learn more by doing than by reading about it in a textbook. So yeah, I'd say just go do that. You might want to pick up the book Shop Class as Craft," An Inquiry into the Value of Work by Matthew Crawford. I read that recently. He was a PhD, head of a think tank in Washington, D.C., and would come home at the end of the day saying, Geez, how did we make the world a better place? What did we do that really makes a difference? Well, he got out of that as a PhD and he's now a vintage motorcycle mechanic. It talks about his business and why he loves it so much. But sometimes we, we devalue work that we do with our hands. I just watched a TED Talk that Mike Rowe did, Mike Rowe from Dirty Jobs. Check it out, just, just Google Mike Rowe, R-O-W-E, Mike Row Ted talks. It'll come up immediately. He says people that do dirty jobs are happier in their work. Man, if you love being around cars and doing cool paint treatments and all, that's where you're going to shine. In his Ted talk, Mike Rowe talks about a pig farmer just on the outskirts of Las Vegas. Well, he discovered that there are millions of pounds of food being thrown out every day. Now think about the waste in a town where people are spending money indiscriminately. Anyway, yeah, there's a whole lot of food being thrown out. That food tends to be high in protein. He gets the thrown away food, feeds it to his pigs. His pigs grow at about twice the rate of normal pigs being fed on just pig food. He's extremely successful was recently offered $60 million for his farm. He said, nah, I kind of like hanging out here. You know, wears overalls and has pig crap on his boots every day. You know, when you find something that you enjoy doing, it doesn't have, it may not be in a fancy cubicle on the 19th floor where you wear a white shirt and a tie. Matter of fact, more and more we're finding it probably won't be there. But I think it's cool to have identified what it is you enjoy doing. Yeah, I think you can go directly toward that. Don't need to pass go. Don't need to collect $200. Just go there. Start working. As an entry-level guy, show your skill quickly, and you can move up quickly. There's no long timelines. You don't have to pass any civil service exams or show them your GPA. Just do great work. The door's open. Great question. Great question. Andrew from Goshen, Indiana. Dan, I wrote you a few months ago about my wife's cloth diaper company. Thanks for your advice. I mentioned, I mentioned it. I'm a seatbelt designer, but also own my own pet waste removal company. My question is, should I put my side business on my resume? The reason I ask is because I want to show the experience I've gained from successfully running my own company for the past three years, but I don't want to scare away future employers because I have a side business. My intent would be to stop the side business if a higher paying opportunity came along. With all the experience I've gained from both jobs over the past three years, I really feel a salary adjustment is due. Should I mention any of this in my resume? Seems like a lot to explain. What would you do? Thank you. Okay, what would I do? Andy, what do you think I'd do? (laughs) If I had a shot at having a cloth diaper company that's growing and a pet waste removal company that's growing, I wouldn't be polishing my resume to go get a job. I mean, that's why I kind of stopped at that point. You've got in there in your question, you say, my intent would be to stop the side businesses. If a higher paying opportunity came along, are you kidding me? I mean, how, how much of a ramp up do you have to have on your own business to have that be more attractive than just getting another J O B? Now, I'm, I'm a big promoter of people having jobs. I mean, we're, we're going to have that model forever and ever. And if that's a great fit, that's fine. But if you have the experience, my, my observation is that once somebody has had the experience as an entrepreneur, it's really difficult to go back to a traditional job. And if you already have a couple of ideas where you're getting traction, I mean, what would happen if you didn't have your regular job and you really put your efforts into those? I mean, could you not grow those three or four times bigger than what they are now? And if so, wouldn't that wildly surpass what you could make in a traditional job? Now, I don't know all the details of your situation, but you ask what I would do. Geez, I'd have a hard time handing handing in my resume to get a job. Now, I I need I need to apologize. I need to go back to your question. You said, should you you ask what I would do, and I can't get my head out of that space, but. Should you, do I think you should put your side businesses on your resume? No, because I think their thinking is going to go exactly where mine did. Wow, if you've got a couple side businesses, how much motivation do you have to really put in your best efforts with us at our company? I'm thinking as soon as you get your businesses ramped up a little bit more, you're going to be gone. So no, I don't think you should put those there. Can you integrate some of the skill sets into your resume? Absolutely. So if you have a functional resume rather than a chronological one you can include in there that you've done sales and marketing and hiring and training whatever you can list the skill sets from your side businesses but i would not raise the red flag at explaining clearly where those skills were developed nope wouldn't do it now now here's one there's so much information out there Now I got a bunch of kind of business questions here as they tend to all be, but we're really going to jump into some. This person says there's so much information out there and numerous resources that I can get overwhelmed in knowing where to start. I feel like I'm stuck in analysis paralysis and it's holding me back from getting started. How do you know when you're ready to market your service when you feel like there's still so much you don't know yet? I'm concerned that I'm going through our savings to build a business and it's time to start bringing money back into our home and repay our savings. Any ideas? By the way, Dan, your profile helped encourage me to start my business as a life story writer. I've enjoyed learning how to get started, but now I need to take the plunge. Well, I'm a big believer in just getting started and then learning and making adjustments and improvements as you go. I mean, you've Heard my story about just started handing out the notes for my Sunday school class. That became the first version of 48 days to the work you love. It had no graphics in it. It was a really amateur layout, just spiral bounded at Kinko's boom. I mean that went through about six upgrades before it became a traditionally hardback book. But in that process, while we were experimenting with just getting it out there you know, we did between 2 and $3 million worth of sales on that little unfancy product. Now, let me remind you again here, that when you talk about how to market something, you can become an expert at how to market something and do that really quickly. Now, I mentioned earlier eCornell. And this is Cornell University, very prestigious university. They've approached us about letting people know about some of their online courses where you can get a certificate in marketing strategy. That's really what I'm promoting. If you go to ecornell.com slash 48 days, you can save 20%. It'll give, it set up our own unique link there to give you 20% off their online marketing strategy course, where within three months you can get a certificate. Now this is going to give you, you know, MBA level ex- expertise in marketing strategy and research positioning pricing brand management new media marketing when you start right where you are it's 100 percent online your own terms in terms of timing but you're going to get an ivy league marketing certificate in as little as three months check it out ecornell.com slash 48 days i mean that it is a matter of just getting in the game well let me let me, let me go on we've got Tons of questions. How do I find a quality lawyer and accountant that specialize in small business? I would say just ask everyone you know until you get four and five referrals. Then call them, ask their area of expertise, their years in business, and fee structure. I mean, it's really no different than trying to find a good doctor or dentist. Just keep asking people. Interview them until you find someone you really like and trust. I mean, I do that with Everything. If I want somebody, as I I recently talked about, we have a yard beauty manager. That's the title we gave him. But I I talked to, I think, four or five people that I had come out to our property and walk our property before I made a selection. It wasn't just the first one. I would never do that with an attorney, accountant, dentist, doctor, same thing. I'd visit several, find somebody that I really connect with. I mean, ultimately, we want to do business with people that we know, like, and trust. You can do the same thing in looking for a lawyer and an accountant. The accountant or bookkeeper that we have, I put a little note out to our 48 Days Community. I had about 53 responses to that, interviewed several, and I've had the same lady now for probably 10 years. I mean, she knows me inside and out. She knows how to make sense out of the records that I have. She can access online things for us. And she just, You know, she's very easy to work with because she doesn't need to ask me a whole lot of questions, take a lot of time. She creates my reports. I mean, it's awesome. But I found her by interviewing several and that's what I would suggest that you do. Then how do you know or decide how and when to implement a non-traditional idea? Well, as you know, I like having a multiple streams of income model where you can try five or six different methods for making money. I mean, we had a lady in our and our audience who is really into specialty teas I mean, she likes to set up tea parties. So she speaks at conferences. She gives tea parties. She sells eBooks on how to for parties, sends people to other internet sites, gets affiliate income. She's selling other companies products. But the main thing is she just got in the game so she could see what works and what doesn't. I mean, I would, don't go out first and, Rent offices, hire staff, buy inventory before you have some feedback. But with a lot of ideas, you can test the waters without a lot of risk. So get in the game by making things happen, but don't obligate yourself to a lot of overhead, a lot of debt, those kind of things. Stay away. Dan, you say good ideas for businesses are everywhere and you'd like us to list at least 20 possibilities. I've had a good idea for the last 20 years. I'm really excited about that idea. Look forward to building it into a really good business. Is that crazy? Well, frankly, I'm a little concerned about you having only one idea. And I really suspect that if your idea was a great one 20 years ago, it'll need to be modified to be valid today. I mean, I can't think of many ideas that I had 20 years ago that would really hold water today. I mean, I'm constantly looking for What's new? What can we roll this into so we stay current, both in terms of technology and just content? I mean, we're doing some things with artistic and creative people today that I would have never dreamed doing two years ago. We're doing things with coaches that were not really marketing, positioning, and coaching methods that we knew about two years ago. I mean, look at the iPhone. I mean, we're right here with the the new iPhone 5, iPhone 5S, I mean, why does Apple come out with something new about every 10 months? Well, <laughs> they they want us to consider our current products obsolete, throw them away and buy new ones, obviously. I mean, it's like a light bulb. Why would, a, why would General Electric want to create a light bulb that would last for a lifetime, even though we obviously have the technology? Well, they kind of make their business obsolete unless they come up with something else. So Apple is constantly rolling forward, and what do they think we want to have next? How can they tantalize us with a a little bit more sophisticated camera or whatever. Well, we do that in our business. If I'm just selling the same principles I was talking about 20 years ago, my, my business is going to dwindle. Well, that's that doesn't happen. I mean, we escalate and escalate and escalate because we keep opening it up. How can we have new ideas for helping people find their passion, do work that's meaningful, start businesses? What are new ideas? So I, I think you ought to, I think you should stretch yourself. Take your one idea and then come up with another 20 to go with that. I mean, even if the things you come up with you think are unrealistic and practical, the process will help you see if your first idea is, in fact, the best one. I mean, I've done that process myself many, many times over, and I've often been surprised that the ideas that are 18, 19, and 20 are better than number one that I started with. But I force myself to go through that process. Dan, I'm a little confused with a business license. You mentioned that we really don't need a business license. When I need a business license, if I have a startup business and a location, thanks, Mary. Well, when, when you heard me say that, that it may not be important to get a business license, I'm probably exaggerating, as I'm prone to do, but I was probably exaggerating just emphasizing the fact that don't make it complex to get started. There are a lot of things where you can start today. Don't make it complicated. If you go down and talk to the SBA office or the SBDC, the Small Business Development Center, you know, you're going to come out with a stack of papers two inches high, and you're going to think, oh my goodness, this is too complicated. I'll just keep my job. i I'm not going to do this. Well, don't be overwhelmed with all that information. That's why I always encourage people to stair-step what they do in terms of complexity. Getting a business license would be the very, very first step. And yeah, for the most part, I do encourage somebody to do that. It'll help you hold your head high and feel like you really do have a business. It'll allow you to go to the bank and open up a separate business account, which you should do. And most banks today won't allow you to open an account in another name unless you do have an actual business license. Now, getting a business license is not complicated. Go to the county clerk's office, wherever you live in your county. It's usually 10 or 20 bucks for the year. Now, that'll put in place some other kind of things as ter- in terms of follow-up, but that's okay. They're small things. But yeah, business license would be the first thing. You don't need to get an EIN, employee identification number from the IRS, unless you're going to have employees. And if you're going to have employees a year from now, you can get the number then. I mean, that's how I do things in business, encourage others to, to add the complexity as you need it, not before. Don't rush out and get a CPA that you lock in for a monthly fee that's going to overview your books when you have not yet generated a dollar in your business. Don't do that. You can catch up to that after six months of generating revenue. I mean, just keep good records. Catch up on that. You know, don't put a lawyer on retainer. I mean, my goodness, there's no, I can't think of any scenario where that would be appropriate to do that. I mean, bring in those things that you need in those times when you do it. I mean, even for the ongoing work that we have done at 48 days, 99% of that is done by independent contractors on a project basis. Now, there are some where we have on monthly retainer, but a lot of things, they're projects that we want people to do. Uh, Here's a question. I, I love this question. This is the beginning of my journey to starting my own businesses. I would like to start a vending business, putting healthy snacks in the machines instead of the same old unhealthy snacks that are sold now. Is this a workable idea? Yes, it is. Now you might think, Oh my gosh. I mean, we've seen the gumball machines and the peanut machines and the candy bar machines, you know, forever. Certainly that's a worn out old idea. Oh Really? Do you know that vending is one of the three top businesses that creates millionaires in America? One of the top three vending. Yes. Just um, vending. I mean, that's a big business. It's estimated over $650 million passed through vending machines in the United States every week. That's over 35 billion a year. So is there potential with vending? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a broad market. It's not dependent on your time. I mean, think about it. If you have a machine set somewhere, depending on where it is in terms of location, you're open for business 168 hours a week without you even being there. You can be sitting on the beach and your business is still open. Do I like the characteristics of that? Yeah, I do. Are there some uh, pitfalls? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, one of those, if you've been listening to my material for a while, you probably have heard me tell the story about one of my first businesses at age 18 was I purchased six hot cashew machines, lost 100% of my money that I paid for them. It was a horrible idea. Does that mean that I hate vending? I know better now. I'll never do. No, I've had tons of vending businesses Since that time years ago, when I had a health and fitness center, I was approached, of course, by Coke and Pepsi and all the other snack machines. They wanted to put vending machines in there. And then I get a small percentage of what they did. I said, you know what? This is a really lucrative machine. This this is a cash machine sitting here. I'm going to buy my own machines, which I did. I bought my own machines, stocked them with our own drinks and snacks, And they were a significant income generator inside the walls of what was already a very profitable business. Now, today, am I still involved in vending? Yes. The hottest selling product we have is our personality profile, the 48 Days Personality Profile. Think about the logistics of how people get that. We set that up in a company They say, we want those. We're going to start with 50 reports. They purchase those. They use those. They show up at 2 a.m. in the morning. We need to restock our inventory. Well, I don't have to back a truck up to a dock, drive across town and unload them. They can be in Columbus, Ohio or Seattle, Washington. They simply put in their information. They instantly are restocked. But in essence, it's, it's an electronic vending business. I love that. Now, one of the things you need to watch here, you want to start a vending business putting healthy snacks in the machines instead of the same old unhealthy snacks that are sold now. Here's an important question. Those unhealthy snacks make the machine owners a whole lot of money. Your desire to put healthy snacks in there may sound good in theory, but is it what the customers want? One of the key questions for any business is, is there a market for my product or service? Don't assume that people will buy what's good for them. You could sell what people need and you'll make a living, but you'll never get rich. You know how you get rich? Sell people what they want. I don't want this to sound like a, you know, like just a cop out. You know, they want things that are going to kill them. You know, and would I, would I sell cigarettes knowing that it's a very profitable business? No, not in a million years. I would not do that. But even things like books, cars, and clothes are sold primarily on people's wants. So be careful about forcing your customers to change their unhealthy habits. You may have what you know they need and go broke. Test the idea. Check out what other vending machine companies are doing, but... Your idea has not worked very well. Universities, schools, the people making a whole lot of money are those ones that are selling M and M's and Fruit Loops and sodas, sugar-loaded sodas, not the ones having healthy snacks. Now, I did have healthy snacks in the machines that I had in the health and fitness center because people were—it was more top of mind. People were more conscious about that. But I gave them—I gave them a choice. And I don't know that the healthy snacks ever outsold the ones that were less healthy, even in a health and fitness center. All right, here's one. I'm just, I'm just scanning here. I'm going to grab a couple more questions. Y'all have really overloaded me the last couple of weeks here with questions. Dan, they say it's a bad idea to go into business with family or friends. My best friend and I would like to begin a venture together. How should we safeguard our friendship if we start a business? Yeah. Believe me, you've heard me talk at length. you have heard Dave Ramsey talk about the only ship that won't, won't float is a partnership. And we talk about the principles and Proverbs that talk about not doing this. So you've heard me talk at length about my reservations about working with family and friends. I mean, I've seen a lot of friendships, family relationships destroyed because of trying to work together. At the same time, I'm very open about the fact that Ashley, my daughter, you know, works with me. I mean, she does tons of stuff. She's my link, my liaison to everybody else that works for the 48 days organization. Ashley coordinates everything. She handles all of our product fulfillment. She handles all of our live events. I mean, there's a whole lot of things that just go, it's me doing, you know, two or three things at the very outset of our business, boom, everything else, the 97% goes through Ashley and other people that she coordinates. Yeah. I mean, Jared, my son has done a lot of graphic design work for us. still does branding, marketing things. Kevin, my oldest son has his own business, but it's an offshoot of what we used to be doing together at 48 days. We just made it his own company and he's gone on from there. And we, you know, do share speaking engagements, do things back and forth. So obviously I think it can work. However, there's some critical things about going into business with family or friends, when you say your best friend and you would like to begin a venture together. I mean, th- there's a passion that I get from my kids and wife in our business and commitment to what we do that I would never expect from someone outside the family, but they are all paid for the results produced. They have no formal ownership of the corporation that Joanna and I formed many years ago. That's a whole lot different. So I would structure your business as something other than a partnership. You can do things together, but don't make it a legal partnership or joint venture in a legal sense. You can create a formula for sharing expenses and profits. That's okay. I mean, here's an example. We just had an event here recently at the sanctuary. So people pay for registration. They come. We have meals catered, so we spend money on that. They buy products, we have money come in on that. When that's all said and done, we look at that event, that event. The money in, the money out. The net profit, after all is said and done, Ashley gets a percentage of that. Now that may sound like a partnership, but it's not a legal partnership. Again, she doesn't have any ownership in 48 Days LLC, but she gets a set percentage of certain things that happen in this company. You can do that with a friend all day long. That's very different than having a formal partnership. I mean, it, I, I just can't think of a scenario where I would recommend it. So do something like that. Don't, don't get into this garbage where you have a company and you each own 50%. I mean, that's ludicrous. You, you can't have an animal without a head and you can't have a company where there's just shared decision-making ability. Ultimately, somebody needs to have 51%. But again, I wouldn't even recommend that you set it up. in the, I would set it up so, even if you both have your own independent businesses, I mean, you can do that. Ashley and her husband, Nathan, have their own management company. You know, I just happen to be their only client. That's cool, but that's their business. Rather than bringing them in under my umbrella legally, no, they have their own business, I'm a client, we've structured everything in that way. I would recommend you do something like that. Okay, Dan, how long should I be in business before I should expect profits? How much money for expenses should I have starting up? How much in personal savings should I have before attempting you know, to start? At what point do I need to try and apply for an SBA loan? What information do I need to have to apply for an SBA loan? I make about $60,000 a year now with all the benefits. I have two young kids and a wife. How do do I become crazy enough to start my own business? It's a huge step and I'm not sure we can manage it or not. Well, if you're going to start a bricks and mortar business, then I'd suggest you have about a year of reserve expecting to just pile money back into the business in those first few months because it's very capital intensive at the front end. And it's going to take a very long time, ramp up time to start seeing a true net profit. I'm going to come back to borrowing money in a second. But however, if you're providing a service or doing something on the internet, then it's not unreasonable to expect to be profitable in the first 90 days. I mean, it's just so easy to get started with those kind of businesses without a lot of capital or expense. So the kind of business will determine how soon you can start taking profits out. My absolute strong, unequivocal encouragement is going to be try to figure out a way to start your business without borrowing any money. And remember, anytime you bring in someone else's money, you brought in a partner. I mean, that's worse than having a partner. Partner may be willing to stick it out with you knowing there's not a, a lot of profit yet. The bank where you got the loan, hey, they want to be repaid from month one. They don't care if you're making money or not. They just wanna be repaid. They can be brutal. I would encourage you to bootstrap your business. Just start small, let the profits grow the business if at all possible. Getting a bank or an SBA loan is certainly not an easy process. I mean, either of those are gonna wanna see a two to three year track record and see that you have the experience to run a business. They're not likely to fund a brand new startup. They're gonna help you along a little bit after you've already proven that you know how to run the business and are showing profitability. But then keep in mind, whatever they do, it's a loan. And that means you immediately have to not only make enough money to cover your expenses and give yourself enough to, so you have food to eat in the house, but you also have to take any potential profits, or even if you don't have potential profits, and start paying back the loan. That that gets really complicated when you, borrow money i do not recommend it have i done it yeah absolutely now let me tell you a couple of different ways i've done it in the early days i just went in of course back in the early days it was a lot easier than it is now and i had friends vouch for me and just got whatever i wanted and got those loans extended just kind of verbal agreements just kind of floating forward loan open-ended loans somewhere i would just pay interest only i mean it was really sloppy easy to get and yes did i do that yeah absolutely i've never i've never not repaid a bank loan either incidentally but as i learned some things and bruised my knees a little along the way i realized how restricting those things were so do i today go borrow money no Not in a strict sense, but I also need to be realistic about some things. We have a long history at this point. So if I have, let's say that I have money, you know, tied up in real estate and other investments, and I get an opportunity to purchase books. Now, this sometimes happens even with my own books, where if they're going from, hardback to paperback. I may have a chance to buy 15,000 copies of my own book. Can we sell those? Absolutely, we can. Now, this may not seem to make sense, but it's done every day. So I may say, okay, I'm going to go ahead and buy those 15,000 books. And if I can get those at $4 a piece, what's that going to be? $60,000? that what that is? Yeah, $60,000. I don't really mind just taking out, ha- having a line of credit in place where I can purchase those because I know exactly what our history has been over a very long period of time and where we're going to go. So if we can sell all of those for $15 a piece, that's more than three times what we paid for them. Yeah. I don't mind doing that at all. So do I have, you know, equity? Do I have other capital to cover that? Sure. Is it a risk in a traditional sense? Well, I could quickly move some things around and not do that. So I use that kind of availability at time only because I have a long track record of making things work. We know we can make that work. That may sound like a a compromise. Um, Would my buddy Dave Ramsey recommend that? No, not in 100 years. But, and you know, this comes from being very immersed in a long and well-seasoned business. That's how we get to that kind of point. Well, and we got a ton more questions here. I love the questions you all are shooting in. If you got a question, just go to 48 days.com. Click on the podcast link. You can shoot a question in there. You can either write it out or just speak it a little microphone there, or just shoot an email. If you're riding in your car, listening to this, you want to just shoot an email, just send it to askdan at, 48days.com and that's at 48 dayscom Well, we were able to cover some pretty cool things and the questions we answered today and that, that quotation, just think about that. If you want to challenge me on that, I don't mind at all. I probably missed a, a core concept here, but when I boarded out, it is better to imitate genius than to create mediocrity. I'll think about that. I'll stew on that myself. A lot of great questions. Thanks for being part of this amazing community. And you know we're taking care of business, still doing it. Hey, I get suggestions about changing our theme song. You know, I just haven't found anything I like that I think is as fitting. Anyway, check out the 48days.net community. That's a growing group of people who are linking arms and sharing ideas as together they are finding or creating work that is meaningful, purposeful, fulfilling, and yes, profitable.